We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. So if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, they've been usually moving around. Um, If you see someone that's got a stack of Bibles, feel free to just grab one or you can get on your phone or whatever you have in front of you. Um, this is a this is a passage that is um, it's it's a well known passage I think in in church circles, but it's also kind of a challenging passage to really dig into and figure out what is what's actually going on here. And it, it's one where I always check with commentaries um, to make sure that I'm not like going off the deep end or that I'm on the right path. And and this is one of those passages where a lot of godly people disagree or have different understandings of, okay, what exactly is um, Jesus talking about? And so because we're going through a a passage like this, I want to make sure that I make um, really clear the point um, from the outset. And the the main point of today uh, is really this idea that Jesus does not fit in your paradigms. He does not fit in your containers. He does not fit in, in your worldview. He's not the, the issue that many people are having with Jesus and the reason why we keep having these um, interactions with Jesus and the Pharisees and with other people and, and why they seem so confused is because he does not meet their expectations. He doesn't fit into what they thought was the case or what they, their understanding of who the Messiah is supposed to be or, or who a rabbi is supposed to be. He is constantly doing things that surprise them and make them, quite frankly, a little uncomfortable. And so he's not just healing lepers, he's touching them to heal them. He's not just teaching, and teaching powerfully, he's teaching with authority. He doesn't just pray that, that evil spirits would go away, he commands them to go away. He doesn't just heal a paralyzed man, he actually um, he forgives sins. He's constantly doing things that are making people stop and say, well, wait, that's not what I expected. He invites the wrong people over for dinner. He associates with all of the wrong people. And now his disciples aren't fasting. And we're going to see this interaction. So would you, would you pray with me? Father, we, we don't need just instruction this morning. God, we, we need new eyes. We need new minds. We need new hearts we don't have those, God, we can't see you. We can't understand and we can't love your word. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us all things new so that we can love you more fully and worship you in more joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 18, Mark chapter 2. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. 
So I want to pause there because I really want to focus on this passage because the temptation is to just skip on. If you ever heard a message on especially wineskins, it's very common to just kind of gloss over this part. But this is the meat of of the deal. Like this is the meat of the passage right here. This is what Jesus is talking about. And so to understand the parables that are about to come, we have to understand what's happening here. And so what we have is some people asking Jesus what I think is an honest question. We don't know who these people are necessarily. Um, they could have been honest seekers. They could have been John's disciples. We, we don't know for sure. I think it's like, likely that these are people who are asking honest questions. I think it's likely these are people who were um, following Jesus. They were seeing what he was doing. They were kind of excited about what was happening. They were challenged by some of it. And they just, they just want to know. They want to say like, okay, help us understand this. I don't get all this. Help me see. Help me understand what you're doing here. And so they, they ask that question. They're like, hey, look, um, like fasting. What's the deal with that? Because John's disciples, they're fasting. And, and the Pharisees' disciples, they fast too. But your disciples, they don't fast. Why, why is that? And Jesus responds, as he typically does, in a way that they couldn't have predicted. He gives the imagery of a wedding party. Now, wedding parties are... Um, a little different than what we have today. A lot of, a lot of times um, in weddings, you'll have a big reception and you might even, they've gotten really big over the last few decades, but it's nothing on Old Testament times. They would do like a, a week-long celebration, just like feasting and celebrating, or whatever. So the couple wouldn't go on a honeymoon. They would just stay and celebrate with their family for a week. Doesn't that sound awesome? No. But for them, that was great. So that's what they did. And they would just feast and they would celebrate and everything, everything was great. And so what Jesus is saying to them is like, well, does it make sense that they would feast or would fast at, a, at, at this celebration? I mean, just understand, like, look, we don't know maybe what a week-long celebration like that is, but you can imagine a party, whether it was a wedding reception or some other party that you have planned and that you have had, you brought food in for people to enjoy. And, you know, imagine if you did all that and you said you got RSVP so you'd know how much food to provide and you went all out and above and beyond and you got all this extra food and you made sure that everybody was taken care of, people who like chicken and people who don't, you know, and people who like, you know, are vegetarians or whatever the situation is. Like we make sure everybody's taken care of. And then as the guests came, what if they said, ah, you know what, I'm not really hungry. I'm actually fasting this week. Like you'd be pretty upset, right? Like that would be pretty upsetting. It would be offensive. It would be insulting. And so Jesus is saying like, what sense would that make? Why would you fast when there's this big feast? This is a time of celebration. Now, to understand why that makes sense, you have to understand, well, what was the point of fasting to begin with? Well, the point of fasting, um, you know, I'm oversimplifying this, but essentially in the Old Testament, people would fast um, sometimes to mourn over their sin, to mourn or grieve over their sin and in an attitude of repentance. Um, we see David doing that, and then we have other times where it's to seek God. And so, like, they're, they're in a time of, of transition or a time of difficulty, and so they fast as a way of, of seeking God and, and relating to him and communing with him. And so Jesus is making the very obvious and simple point. If the, if the point of fasting is to connect with God, does it make sense to fast when God's standing right in front of you? And the simple answer is, well, no, of course not. That's just as ridiculous as fasting at a wedding feast. You wouldn't do it. Fasting is a, is an, is a 
piece of mourning. You wouldn't mourn at a celebration, and nor would you do this thing that's meant to connect you with God when God is standing right in front of you. And people continue to miss this. They don't understand what's going on. And I think the, the, big, the big deal here is that the problem isn't with their understanding of fasting. The problem is with the way they are thinking about everything. And that's why Jesus goes on to these next two parables. Verse 21 says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. It's pretty self-explanatory. You don't, I mean, we don't typically patch things all the time like that, but, but if you put an unshrunk piece of cloth on something that has already shrunk, when it does shrink, it's going to tear, and it's going to make a worse, a worse hole than what was there before. And then he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So same idea. Like the wine expands. This time the, the, it expands in there. And so um, they would put these, the wine in these wineskins, which are essentially like these goats. They would take the goat skin, and they would put the wine in there. And obviously if you put it in a new skin... Um, that new skin still is, is kind of, it can shape and change and form and it's flexible. And so as the wine expands in there, um, the, the container can handle it. But if you put new wine into an old wine skin that is um, already hardened and already stretched, then when that new wine expa- expands in there, it finds a skin that is brittle and it'll crack and break and it'll destroy both the wine skin and the wine. Okay, now that we've explained that, obviously we see what this has to do with fasting. No. And I think that's what people would have been sitting there thinking. They're hearing him say these things and be like, okay, yeah, I get that. But what about the fasting? And I think a a big part of this, what we have to understand is that Jesus, what he knows is their problem isn't that they don't understand fasting. The problem is that They don't know how to think or see these things. The problem isn't that like, okay, if I just clarified this thing about fasting, then it'll make sense and now you'll understand. Because what they're trying to do is they've got their old worldview, their old way of thinking, and they're trying to take the teachings of Jesus and just add that in there and make it kind of fit in that. And what Jesus is saying, your problem isn't this thing, whether you understand this thing or not, that's not your problem. The problem is that no matter what you get about that, you're trying to patch that in to your old way of thinking. And if you do that, it's going to destroy both. And Jesus, in this moment is doing what he commonly does, which is he gives an answer that makes the question seem ridiculous. Right? We already saw this when they said, why, why is your master, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds with, well, a doctor goes to the sick, not to the well. And what's he saying? That like they're all sitting there and they're all confused and they're saying, why? Why is Jesus eating with these people? And Jesus responds with, that's a ridiculous question. Of course I'm going to be eating with these people. Doctors see sick people, not well people. 
And if they saw, the problem wasn't that they didn't understand really about like, um, what they were going to is, how do you know who can you eat with and who makes you clean and what makes you unclean and who am I supposed to eat with? What am I supposed to eat? And Jesus says, the way you're thinking about all of this is the problem. The problem is you don't have eyes to see what's in front of you. He's simply saying that you need, if you want to see what I'm doing, then you need new eyes. If you want to understand what I'm saying to you, you need a new mind. If you want to love the things that I love, you need a new heart. You cannot take those things and just patch them in to your old way of thinking and your old way of feeling and expect that to work. It's for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And he does this multiple times. He does this with the woman at the well, who in John 4, she's at the, at the well, a Samaritan woman, and Jesus asks her for a drink, and she responds with, like, you're not supposed to be talking to me because I'm a Samaritan woman. And Jesus responds, if you knew the gift of God in John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What's he saying to her? She's, she's just thinking about water. She's thinking about things. She's seeing things the way she's always seen them and always understood them. And now Jesus is coming into the picture and he's saying, if you saw what was in front of you, if you understood what was actually going on here, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. This is constant that Jesus is doing this. When Robbie and I were, this week, we were wrestling over this passage and I was bouncing some things off of him. We were talking about another passage of an upcoming message and we were kind of hashing out some of these understandings. And at one point I said to him, I said, you know, I just wish if Jesus was just physically here, right here, sitting at this table with us, I would just ask him just a quick question. Just be like, one quick question. Is this A or is it B? And I said to him, I was like, well, yeah. And then he probably would say something like, yes. And, and which would be annoying. And Robbie said, no, actually probably what he would do is he would ask you a question you didn't even think of. That's exactly what he would do. And we've talked about this before, that Jesus is always asking bigger and better questions than you and I ever are. A clear example of this, this eyes of, and, and needing to see with new eyes is in John 3. The story of Nicodemus. Verse 1 says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Look at this. Nicodemus is, is a Pharisee. He is a, a religious leader. And he goes to Jesus by night because he doesn't want anybody else to notice this. And he's saying, look, I've seen all these things. It's pretty amazing all this stuff you're doing. I believe that you must be from God. And so I think I see what you're doing. And Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So what Jesus is saying to him, you you can't see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And we look at that, and because that phrase and that terminology has been used so much, like that doesn't seem weird to us, but if you and I were there with Nicodemus, we would also think that was weird. We would say, like, I don't understand what you're saying. And it's because he is thinking only of the things of the flesh. He cannot see the things of the Spirit. He does not understand those. Jesus is saying, if you want to understand that, you have to be made new. This is probably the most supernatural thing that happens in Christianity. The hardest thing to grasp is this idea of being made new. There's lots of other things in the Christian faith that kind of make sense and we can explain that. Like we can understand like Jesus dies on the cross. He takes the punishment for our sins. And so we, we receive his righteousness. That is, that's a mystery to fully grasp, but we can kind of explain that. But, but one of the things that's so difficult to really understand is this idea of having, being a new creation. Having a new mind, being given a new heart, a new spirit. And because it's such a mystery, like we, we tend to kind of settle for something less than that. And so we look at it and we say, well, okay, being transformed and having a renewing of their mind just means that I kind of grow in my understanding. And so, so I take my, I, I used to think these things, but over time I've become a better person. Over time I've become more wise. Uh, over time I've become more educated. I've, I've, I've figured out some things. And so we look at it that way and we say, see, so look how different I am. Like that's transformation. Except that's not what the Bible says. It says we are new creations. It says we are transformed, Romans 12, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are no longer, we don't think the way we used to think. We don't love the things we used to love. We don't see the things we used to see. We see something completely different and glorious. And it's so hard to explain that. It's so hard to put that into words. But if we don't do that, if we do not become new creations then we will not see the gospel as good news. If we try to just take those teachings and those understandings about Jesus and and put it into our old fleshly worldview and understandings, it will make the tear worse. It will destroy both. I've seen this happen a lot in the evangelical church in America, especially. I mean, that's the one I've had the most experience in. There's a couple of ways I'll, I'll point out. One, one of them is, it comes out as Christian karma. So karma, oversimplified, is the idea that I do good things and then good things happen to me. Pretty simple. 
Like if you do bad things, bad things happen to you. If you do good things, good things happen to you. And so the idea of like I put that out into the universe and then it come, it'll come back to me. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday all of that, it'll all even out in the end. And the idea is that once we get to death, like wherever the final destination is or the final resting place, whatever, all of those things will kind of equal out. It'll zero out. That makes sense. So everything I did put in, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back. And so what happens is we, we do that and we, we think that and then we come to Christ. And we start to see like, oh, okay, so, so it's not like it, it's not this kind of nebulous universe thing. It's not this kind of thing where like I just, I just do like good in the universe and so then things come back to me from the universe. Like, okay, I get that. And so, so now I know it's God. And what we don't understand that we've just done is all we've done is replace the word universe with God. But it's the same way of thinking and the same heart. And it comes out like this. So I do good things for God and he does good things for me. So I remain sexually pure and he gives me a good marriage. I give financially to the church and he makes my retirement account flourish. I serve in a ministry, or I serve other people, and so then they'll serve me. And it doesn't fit. And when it doesn't fit, that brittle old wineskin just collapses with the new wine as it, exp- as it expands. And we have people who leave the faith because they say, I did all these things for God and then my husband died. I did all these things for God. I listened to what he said. I went to all the seminars. I handled all my money properly. And then my retirement account went away. That mindset has no room for suffering. It has no room for seeing Jesus as the greatest treasure and it will collapse and it will break and then both things are destroyed. We see it in another version of that with works righteousness. There's some people who say, oh look, I've lived plenty of life. I know that just because I do good things, good things don't come back to me. In fact, I know that you just, you, you do things because it's the right thing to do. Like you don't do things expecting anything back because you can't expect anything from anyone. And so you have that view. And so that comes out in the, the world's view of saying like, well, just being a good person is what matters. And so most Americans, if you ask them, like, is there a heaven or hell? Most, most Americans say, yes, there's a, there's a heaven. And if you ask most Americans, like, how do you get there? They'll say, well, by being a good person. And if you dig a little more deeply in that, you find they'll say, well, that just means I need to do more good things than bad things. Right? I mean, that's a really common thing. Like, it's just, we see it as a scale. And so as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then that defines, that defines what is good. And so then that person comes to Christ. And that person says, oh, okay. So this isn't just about like what I define as good and this isn't about a scale and pretty much anybody that grows up in the church or or calls themselves a Christian would say, well, I know that's not quite right. And then we just 
move it over into kind of a Christian-flavored version of the same thing. So now it's not just what I think is right or what I think is wrong and what I think are good deeds or bad deeds. Now it's what the Bible says are good deeds and bad deeds. But I carry with it that same heart, that same idea of, okay, well, look, as long as I'm 51% good, I'm fine. And so it comes out in the church where we read the Bible and we say, well, as long as I obey most of it, I'm good. And so it becomes a, a front for pursuing our own desires. And we get really adamant. The funny thing is, is I mean, this is legalism. And we get really adamant that everyone else also needs to follow the rules that we think are most important. Have you ever noticed that? We get really indignant when people aren't following the rules that God set out, the, the ones that we agree with. Now, if we get pointed out, so this happens to me all the time. Like, then I point out something else in Scripture, and you say, ah, oh, well, nobody's perfect. Right? Like, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, like, you know, if you don't do this, then, you know, then you are not right with God. And then over here, like, well, you don't do this. Well, nobody's perfect. That's what grace is for. Do you see, like, this, it's broken, the wine just spills out all over the ground. It's, it's, we miss the whole point. It's the, the idea that I'm made righteous by my works, and so as long as I do enough good things, I'm fine. So I, I go to church, and then I go do whatever else I want. It doesn't matter. I went to church. Or I have my quiet time in the morning, and I can, I can spend the rest of my day however I want to. It doesn't matter. Or I spend my money. I budgeted my money well, and I followed all the rules with that. I gave money to the church, and so now I can spend it however I want to. I can store up as much as I want to for myself. It's just a Christian-flavored version of the old way of thinking. It is a patch, an unshrunk patch on an old garment, and it will tear. See, all these different things that you see in Scripture, giving away your money radically, serving and being taken advantage of willingly, suffering joyfully, that's not just becoming a better person. That's not taking the teachings of Jesus and putting it on the way I've always seen things. That's seeing things completely differently. That is scales falling from your eyes and seeing that Jesus is a treasure hidden in a field. This happens in the church and we have to stand guard against this. We have to be mindful. We have to exhort one another to see things with, with new eyes, to plead with God to give us those eyes and give us those hearts. All across America, this story is so common that it's just become normative. We see churches die because they have fallen prey to these forms of mixing new wine with old wineskins. We see it a lot like in, in traditionalism. Churches, when faced with a choice, choose the wineskin at the expense of the wine. Like I said, it happens so often that it's just common. It's normative. If you go to any city, any community, and I've said this before, but if you go back 30, 40, 50 years and you make a list of the most impactful churches in that area, the ones who are the most relevant, the ones who are doing the most, the ones that are the most vibrant, and you compare it to a list from today, 
the vast majority will not be the same. The vast majority. Well, why not? Because we've allowed these kinds of ideas to creep in and to become normative. And we don't realize that Jesus will not be contained by our structures. And when it comes down to it, so many churches choose the skin over the wine. And if they do, either way, they're going to be destroyed. But an important point of this is that this isn't just about new being better than old. That is not the point of this passage. So it's so easy at this point, like this is where often the temptation, especially if you're like a vision caster like me who gets really excited about vision and gets excited about going in a direction and, and leading people there. and get, like It's so tempting to be like, see, so new things are better than old things. Except that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that new things are better than old things. How do I know this? Well, look at what he's talking about with the fasting. He says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So what Jesus isn't saying is, Hey, that fasting thing you were doing, that is old and lame. Let me give you some new things to do. What he's saying is the point of fasting doesn't make sense right now. But there's going to come a day where they're going to fast again. This verse is often misused to make the argument that new is better or more is better. But Jesus is often making the argument that the vintage is much better. I mean, this, is, this comes up in the fasting. Fasting was, Mosaic law just required one day of fasting. That's all that was in the Mosaic law. But what happened over time was people thought, you know what, we can improve on this. We're really good at doing that. Like, ah, you say this, God? All right, well, let me just, I'll just make this better. And so started fasting more and more to the point where the Pharisees would fast two days a week and were kind of required to do that. And their disciples would do that. And so if a little fasting is good, then a lot of fasting is, is better. And we don't know why they were doing it. And Jesus doesn't even comment on that, but he's just saying that's not the point. The point of fasting doesn't make sense right now, but there is going to come a day where they'll fast again. Anytime we take what Jesus has commanded us and anything that God says, and we say, you know what? You know it would be even better than that. Like, I think I can improve on that. We're in trouble. This happens a lot. I, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. It's very dear to me. I grew up in it, and I started ministering, ministering in it. That's when I started preaching, and everything was in the United Methodist Church. And if you've read anything, they are at a major crossroads as a, as a denomination. And they're likely headed for a split, if not today or tomorrow, soon. And that is heartbreaking to me. And there'll be all these other issues that they'll put out front and say, well, this is the issue. This is the issue. I can tell you from growing up in it and being in ministry and in leadership in it, I can tell you that the issue is the camp is divided between people who look at the Bible and say, that is the word of God and it lasts forever. And other people saying, I think our understanding can help shape this. That is old and we want something new. 
And so we look at it and we say, ah, this, that theology is just so, that's old wineskin. Like that view, like that view you have about, you know, about creation or that view you have about like the Bible being the word of God and authoritative. Like we have so much more knowledge now. We have so much more understanding. Like that's just so archaic and articles are written all the time pleading with pastors. Like just make everything more relevant. Like you just have to be able to expand on it. You got to put this in a new wineskin. And the funny thing is, the irony, of course, is that none of those thoughts are new. Nothing is new under the sun. What is new, give it 10 minutes and it will become old. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't saying new is better. He's not saying old is better. He's saying true is better. He's saying he is better. It's always what he's saying. In our mind that we keep saying like, oh, okay, so you want us to do this thing. Okay, got it. We're going to do this thing. And he's like, no, no, no. You're pursuing me through this thing. You can't forget that. If you forget that, then you will lose it. You will lose all of it. It will all be destroyed. This happens in the church a lot where we, we think that our innovations and our, our ingenuity will make things better and make things um, like bigger for the kingdom. We see that in the church when the church has gone towards like entertainment, worship as entertainment. And so we, we seek to entertain people. We seek to like, we want to entertain you with music and, and I'll entertain you with stories. And, and we start to go down that road and we think like, oh, okay, that'll draw people in. And if people are coming in, they'll hear the gospel then. And isn't it better that more people come in? But then as we start focusing on that, we start thinking about like, how do we draw more people in? And we, stop, we start forgetting about what we're actually offering to people. And when that becomes the main thing, we, we forget the whole point of it to begin with. Look, if you're new here, and if you don't know if you believe in Jesus, this is a great place for you to be to figure that out. I'm thrilled that you're here. You have no idea how excited I am that you're here. And I want you to feel welcomed. But my goal, you have to understand, is not to make sure you're comfortable through this whole thing. And that's a good thing. And I think you'd agree. I've been worship in, in different faiths. I've been to worship services of different faiths. And I can tell you that every time I have felt incredibly uncomfortable at different points. And I should. If I went into a Muslim mosque and I felt totally comfortable, something's wrong. Either with the mosque or with me, something is off. Because we're not, saying, we're, not, we're not saying the same things. And if we get so focused on measuring things by how people feel about it and how entertaining it was or anything like that, then we are in trouble. When I was back in Colorado, I had a neighbor friend who was Jewish. And he was a friend of mine, and we were talking one time, and he got really excited about going to a local church. It was a local evangelical Bible-teaching church. And he was really excited about going to it. And he, he got so excited about going to it that even when his wife, who, who was Christian, um, wasn't available, she was at work or something like that, he would still take the kids and he would still go. And I asked him one time, I said, hey, what, why are you so, like, what's going on here? Like, are you, are you like, what are you hearing about Jesus? And what, what are you thinking about that? And like, help me, help me know what's going on with you. 
Because you seem really excited about going to this church. He's like, oh yeah, this church is the best. And I said, okay, so tell me, tell me about Jesus. Like, where are you with Jesus then? And he goes, oh, I don't, yeah, no, I don't believe any of the Jesus stuff. But you don't, that's the great thing. You don't have to to go to that church. I can just take all the Jesus out of everything and it's still super helpful. And I'm like, well, that doesn't sound right. Like, I, I want, my hope is for you in here who don't believe in Jesus and you're not there yet, my hope is to always offer you a picture of the gospel so that you are left saying, if Jesus is real, then that is the most incredible thing I've heard. If Jesus isn't real, then this is all worthless. Because all I have to offer you is Jesus. Amen. That's, that's all that's going to actually fill you up. That's the only thing that's going to actually satisfy you. And if I spend all of our time, if we spend all of our time entertaining and making sure that nobody is upset or nobody's offended, and that like if we're making sure that everything is um, functions like in a proper way so that everything you know goes really smoothly, if we do all that, then all we're doing is distracting everybody from the real issue at hand. And God help us if we do that. So if you think that more people will be reached because of the songs we pick or the programs we offer, then missing the point. Jesus doesn't fit in those containers. He doesn't fit in our old, crusty religion and moralism, and he doesn't fit into our new, innovative ideas that we think are just better, which are not new anyway. The point isn't new or old. It's Jesus. And if you try to graft those together, you destroy them both. You destroy it in your heart, and you'll become discouraged. And even though you may be on a spiritual high for a little bit, you will walk away. Because it will tear, and the hole will be worse than it was before. And it'll happen as a church if we just try to graft our understanding of the gospel and of mission and try to put it into our paradigms and make it fit in there. The cost is too great to not be serious about that. And some people will hear that and like the Pharisees will say, well, then I'm out. Like there are some people and I've, I've dealt with it here, I've dealt with it, I've dealt with it everywhere in my ministry always and I've seen it in other friends as a common experience that essentially if you give people a choice between their old wineskin and the new wine and they believe that it's going to destroy it to combine the two, they'll take the old wineskin. Because that's what's comfortable, that's what I know, that's what I was putting my hope in. And that's what happened to the Pharisees. That's why some of them rejoiced at what Jesus was saying and some of them were angry. Because he was attacking all the things they had placed all their value in, all their hope in. He was revealing in their hearts what they truly worshipped. And what he was saying is you have to have a new mind. You have to be born again. So how do we protect ourselves as a church? How do we protect ourselves as a heart? Well, one is to constantly be communicating the renewal of our minds. 
I was counseling a, a student one time, and he asked, he said to me, he said, Jay, I, I don't like reading the, the Bible. It's boring. It was after, like, trying to talk about quiet times and all these excuses, like, I, I can't do that, or I don't have time, or I tried, I didn't do it, whatever. Finally digging down and saying, like, I, I think the Bible is boring. I don't think it's really relevant to my life. I know that when they said that, they were expecting me to respond with sinner, just keep reading it. Instead, by the grace of God, I said, I totally get that. And I said, Do you know how many times I read the Bible and I think it's boring and irrelevant? And he looked at me and could tell he's thinking, is this a trick question? You can like pounce on me here? Say, zero, that's why I'm holier than you. No. <laughs> I told him all the time. And I said, what do you think the problem is? You think the problem is the Bible or the way you see the Bible? Do you think the problem is that we need to Get yet another translation and yet another, you know, illustrations or commentaries or, or whatever. And like, is that the problem or, or is it possible that the way I see it is the problem? So what I told him was, when I see it that way, I know that I'm seeing it with old eyes, with flesh eyes, with a deceiving heart. Because what I actually have here is the God of the universe inspired people across thousands of years to write a consistent, all-encompassing story to give to me so that, as it says, so that we would come to an understanding of this incredible Jesus and have eternal life. That's incredible. And when I don't see that, the problem is with my eyes. And so what I encourage him to do is the same thing I encourage anybody to do. It's what I do to myself all the time when I look at Scripture and I say, I don't want to read this. I'm tired. I don't want to be there. I don't pray that God would give me more willpower. I pray that God would give me eyes to see the glories that are here. So we have to do that with each other. When we say, like, ah, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling torn about this, like, I, I hate seeing this go, or I, I, I don't understand, like, why this is happening, we should pray that God would give us eyes to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want those eyes, then ask God for those eyes, and he will give them to you because he is faithful. And when that happens, you'll never worry about wineskins. You won't worry about asking, like saying, okay, well, if I just understand specifically what's going on here, then everything will make sense. You'll just say, I just need to see things differently. I need to have new eyes. I need to have a new heart. There are going to be people who will say, 
I don't want to see any of that. I know what I think. I know what I've always believed. And I'm good with that. And then my heart grieves for that. But the Bible's pretty clear. There's only so much that I can do. But if you're hearing this and you're saying, oh, I, I want Jesus. One example of that, by the way, is when we say something changed me. Think about something that had an impact on your life. Think about a ministry, a program, an event, any of those things. What we tend to do as a church is we tend to say, I was impacted by this, therefore it's imp- that everyone else needs to experience that because that's how they're going to be impacted. And so when I get reputations like I hate ministries, I hate programs, I hate Bible studies, any of that stuff, where that comes from often is somebody saying to me something like this. Well, I don't understand why you aren't promoting Bible studies more. I was in a Bible study. It changed my life. And so I want everybody else to be in, that Bible, to be in a Bible study. And what I will emphatically tell you is that Bible study did not change your life. The living God, through the power of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, speaking through his word, is what changed your life. I've had people tell me, like, I got saved at a crusade. So what we need to do is have more evangelistic crusades. Like, that's what we need to do. We need to rent out the biggest stadium we can find. We rent out Lambeau Field and bring somebody in and speak because that's what saved me. And I say, no, it did not. The living God looked down on you and grabbed your heart and spoke life into it and brought it alive through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what saved you. The other thing was a wineskin. It's just a skin. And no skin, no matter how awesome we think that skin is, can ever contain Jesus Christ. So that's my plea with us as a church family. So let's, let's pursue the real thing together. Let's pursue Jesus Christ together. And we'll, we'll do anything. We'll, we'll have any kind of create environments or do whatever it takes to create environments for the Holy Spirit to, to work and to move in people's lives. But we will not be a slave to programs and skins. We just won't. Our desire is to create environments for people to connect with people to point them to Jesus. I got nothing else to offer you. The elders have nothing else to offer. And I know that for the vast majority in here, you don't want anything else. It's messy. It's hard to walk through that. We'll ask a lot of questions just like the disciples of Jesus did. But I'll close with this challenge. If you are sitting here and you're a non-believer, you classify yourself, you say, I'm like, maybe you've gone to church or whatever, but you're like, I don't know that I really believe this. Certainly doesn't, doesn't have a huge impact on my life. And you look at this, and if you hear what is being spoken here, and you hear about people giving radically and serving um, in, in different ways, and you hear that stuff, and it sounds like foolishness to you, 
then I would encourage you to pray to God and say, God, if you are real, give me eyes to see this as beautiful. Give me eyes to see this as powerful. I believe he will. And if you're here and you are a Christ follower, then let that be your prayer this week. No matter what comes in front of you, no matter what trial, no matter what situation, no matter what thing that frustrates you or upsets you or, or even makes you happy, whatever, whatever thing comes your way this week, start with this prayer. God, I want to see things the way you see them. I want to see with new eyes. I want to see with spiritual eyes. I don't want to see with the eyes of my flesh. I don't want to see the eyes of, with the eyes of my, my old heart. I don't want to see that. I want to see with a new heart and with new eyes. Whatever it is. And see what he does in that. What would happen if we all did that this week? What opportunities do you think God would give you to declare his glory to a lost and hurting world? What, what forms of comfort do you think God would give your heart? What bits of joy that is inexpressible would God bring to you this week? I wish we were in a smaller venue that, so the next week I could be like, all right, let's share some stories. But you can still do that. Try that this week. And then share those stories of what God is doing and how you are seeing things differently than before and share that with people so that others may glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we, we love you and we desperately need you. And God, it is so clear that we need new eyes to see. We need new minds that would understand. And we need new hearts that would love and desire the things of you. And we know, God, that when we see that, we will stand with others who would say, why would you fast? Why would we mourn? This is a time to celebrate. That we would have joy that is inexpressible and a peace that surpasses understanding and that we would live that out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.